take your Bible and turn to James 5. James 5. We'll continue a series that I've entitled How to Handle Suffering in a Christ-Honoring Way. James chapter 5. Unbeknownst to most professing Christians, there has been an all-out war declared on the faith. Not only are most Christians ignorant of this war, they have become casualties of this war. Some are captives. Some have been wounded. Some have been fatally wounded. And worse than being a casualty, some Christians have become traitors to Christ, I should say professing Christians, and accomplices in propagating the enemy's agenda. And now I hope you're wondering, what war do I speak of? Because you could say there are a lot of wars (laughs) declared against the faith, but I'm speaking of a very specific one this morning. It is the ongoing deadly assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency of Scripture. As fundamental Baptistic, Reformed, Evangelical believers, one of our benchmarks has historically been an unwavering and unapologetic belief that God's Word is enough to change people. That means that it alone is the means by which a believer is sanctified, which again, sanctification simply defined as becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That was the predominant view in the church of Jesus Christ until, much to her shame, she rejected that view in exchange for man's opinions. They welcomed and embraced the practice of integrating a social science called psychology, with fundamental biblical truth. And the problems that are approached by that practice, by integrating the scripture with psychological theories, it deceives individuals into diminishing God and into believing that he has not provided and cannot provide sufficient truth, insight, and wisdom That will change their lives. Also called the philosophy of men that Paul warns us of in Colossians 2. As a matter of fact, what you get when you mix the two is not help. You get confusion, diversion, and error. You get a life that's full of fear and panic and anger and bitterness and depression and pride, isolation. So I must remind you, as gently as I can, that psychology and the Bible are on polar opposite spectrums. One is man-crafted. The other is God-breathed. One leads to a gospel-less false hope. The other leads to complete freedom and true hope. One misleads you down a destructive path. The other lights the way to true salvation. One compels you to look for answers within self. The other urges you to look to the one who created the world. 
and the one who has sustained you. Finally, in comparing the two, employing Freudian psychoanalysis in a season of grief is counsel to let yourself feel whatever you want, right? Express yourself. Yell at the heavens. Give them a piece of your mind because you're the victim. But the one who truly believes God's word has a desire not to vent, not to express yourself, not to get back, not to wallow. He or she has a desire to honor Christ in suffering every time. And to learn how to handle suffering in the right way, the Christ-honoring way, we need to go to James 5, verses 7 to 11, where he provides us with a six-step process to handling suffering in a Christ-honoring way. Let's read it again. James 5, 7 to 11. James writes to the Diaspora, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Six steps in this text that will enable you to handle suffering in a Christ-honoring way. And we get it all from the sufficient word of God. Two weeks ago, last time, we covered the first step, which is to focus on Christ's return. The first step in, in handling suffering, the Christ-honoring way, is to focus on the Lord's return. Verses 7 and 8. We learn that we all should live with the consciousness of that, that the parousia, the coming of the Lord, could occur any time, and that one needs to make decisions and choose values based on that realization. And also, focusing on Christ's return causes us to be reminded that our decaying world and our life on this earth is temporary. And that life after this is eternal, free from sin. Now, the second step to handling suffering in a Christ-honoring way is to control your tongue. Verse 9, control your tongue. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Now, as one commentator pointed out, this verse on the surface seems to not fit really well with the context. But if we carefully consider the broader context again, it very much fits here. Because James' prohibition of grumbling against one another fits with one of the most persistent motifs of this letter. 
namely the problem of sinful speech, which is mentioned in chapters 1, 3, 4, and here again in 5. In addition to considering this pattern, we must admit how we tend to complain against those who are close to us, husband or wife, when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. How many times have you went home after a long day and just aired out your frustrations to your spouse? We've done it. Because by nature, we like to vent. We like to vent the pressure of a stressful work environment or from ill health on our closest friends. So it would be quite natural if James's readers, under the pressure of poverty and persecution, verses 1 to 6, chapter 5, remember, would turn their frustrations on one another and lose the control of the tongue, which can make matters much worse, right? And again, we've all done that. We've all said things that we regret when we're in a time of hard circumstances, right? We've all had to repent and say to someone, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean it. Please forgive me. We grumble the most when we find ourselves under pressure. And perhaps we complain more intensely when we are suffering the loss of something. Now look, look, uh, look closely at verse 9 again. The word grumble or complain translates a Greek word that elsewhere in the Bible occurs usually with the meaning of to groan or to sigh. Right? Like, you tell your child to do something, they go, right? Or or they groan, say, ah, I don't want to do that. Which connotes an expression of frustration, right? And that's exactly what we read about people in the Old Testament. They would sigh, they would complain, they would grumble, they would groan when they were out in the wilderness, right? For example, Exodus 2, verse 23 says, During that period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out to God for help. So James very very clearly uses this verb to describe groaning, complaining against fellow Believers in their faith community. But the broader context of the word, once again, adds to the nuance, implying that groans are the result of oppression. And so, may I deliver to you a hard truth this morning? Groaning is inexcusable even when we think we have a legitimate cause for it, it's never okay. You would think that if there was an occasion or justification for groaning, it would be the diaspora. They're being starved, they're being persecuted. But James says, do not do that. So even in our suffering, we need to control our tongue. Because in, it's in the initial season of our suffering, we just want to let, let, let our mouth go, Right? We need to control the tongue and reject the idea that you deserve the right to express yourself. That is a psychobabble doctrine, not a biblical one. As we see here, the Bible plainly says, 
do not grumble, so that you yourselves may not be judged. In other words, criticism of a brother or sister places you in danger of being judged by Christ imminently. By revealing this to us, James, the ultimate authority in the life of the Diaspora, says that Christ, who is the judge of mankind, is standing at the door, which simply means that his judgment is imminent. He's waiting for it. And so, like, the chief thing to motivate us to refrain from grumbling is accountability to Christ. We know that we're accountable to him, and he is coming to judge all of us, including believers. And so we must remember that Jesus is not just a Savior. He is also supreme judge of the living and the dead, which includes the church. So it's in, time, it's in times of suffering that we need to control our tongue. Because that's when our wicked hearts naturally conjure up all types of gripes and complaints. That's the second step in honoring Christ in your suffering. Control the tongue. The third step that you need to take in handling suffering the Christ-honoring way is to imitate godly examples. In verse 10. Imitate godly examples. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, the word example, it refers to something or someone that spurs others to imitation. Jesus used it in John thirteen fifteen. He said, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. And in that context, he was washing their feet. This is the example I leave imitated. The word is also used in a negative sense, though. Take, for instance, 2 Peter 2, verse 6. If he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So you could imitate godly examples and you could imitate ungodly examples. So we understand that in our suffering, James has in mind for us to mimic or imitate the way the Old Testament prophets handled their troubles. Now we might ask, how did they handle it? Because James isn't specific here, right? He just generally mentions the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament and, and, and remind ourselves, right? How did the Old Testament prophets handle their suffering. Because we know, we have to know what to imitate before we can imitate it, right? So, they didn't turn to secular pagan thought, right, for help. They, they didn't go reach for drugs to numb their emotional pain. Let's see what they did. For the sake of time, we can't survey every prophet. But how about Jeremiah, for instance, who was called the weeping prophet? He was a man who spoke in the name of the Lord, as James puts it, to a very hardened and rebellious people. And he suffered at the hands of pagan kings. 
As another example of one who spoke in the name of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah, who preached to a wayward Israel and ended up dying a martyr by being sawed in two, according to Hebrews 11. In our age, this principle of following godly examples could, without a doubt, be applied to imitating the New Testament apostles as well. who lived a life of severe, constant persecution, leading to a martyr's death. Like Peter and Paul. John, exiled until he died. He endured it. What about John the Baptist? Who was considered an old covenant prophet. While living an extremely minimalistic life, He underwent strong opposition during his entire ministry. And then how many of you remember what happened to him? How did John the Baptist meet his demise? Mark 6 reveals that at the request of a pagan woman named Herodias, she got the king to have John beheaded and then bring in his head on a platter as a gift. Even to the end, John the Baptist endured. And so what we learn from men like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Peter, Paul, John, John the Baptist, is to cling to Christ in our suffering and stand firm in our face to the end. So brothers and sisters, do not look to the world for examples. Look to faithful men and women in the Bible and throughout church history. I could stand up here for hours and and give you examples of men and women in church history who endured under suffering. And who suffered more than you and I ever will. They endured to the end. That's the third step. Fourth step to handling suffering in a Christ-honoring way, is to remember the goodness of God. Remember the goodness of God. Look at the first phrase in verse 11. It says, we count those blessed who endured. And now, I want you to focus on the word blessed. In fact, if you like to mark in your Bible and underline stuff in your Bible, underline blessed in that context. Because it's significant. I want you to think through this with me real quick. The those in verse 11 refer to the prophets who suffered greatly. And then James says something even more shocking about them. They did not just endure. They were blessed. Think about that. The prophets who were martyred, the prophets who were rejected and despised, they were blessed. Doesn't that blow your mind? How antithetical to mainstream evangelical theology is that? That intense suffering leading to martyrdom was a blessed life. Does that not rock your mind? People don't want to view suffering as a blessing. Because we think blessing equals a cush life and trouble-free life with comfort and worry-free living. Right? Right? 
but that's not true. Because James says, hey, those guys who died as martyrs were direct recipients of God's goodness. They were blessed to suffer for God's sake. That is how we need to train ourselves to think. Especially in a time in our country that's becoming more and more hostile to universal immutable truth. Listen to 1 Peter 3 uh, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You're blessed if you should suffer. The word blessed in the New Testament, it does not mean what we typically mean when we say I'm blessed. You know, because I've never heard anyone say in a time of suffering, man, I'm just so blessed right now. So here's what blessed means. It means possessing the grace of God, indicating the state of being marked by the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit. Let me restate that. To be blessed, biblically defined, means to possess the grace of God, indicating the state of being marked by the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit. To put it another way, to be blessed is equivalent to having God's kingdom within your heart, which is only made possible through the regeneration by the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. So if you're saved today, you're blessed. So from here on out, I want to challenge you to think of blessing as having to do with the objective state of our relationship with God. Not our emotions predicated upon life's circumstances. Now, given what I just said, is there ever a time when you're not blessed? Of course not. Even in the midst of your darkest trials, God's blessing is evident. Because first and foremost, by grace alone, we have eternal life. And not only that, you have been allowed to live on God's earth in order to further his good news. And so the takeaway from this fourth step is this. God is blessing you all the time. During every breath you take in, you can live with the objective reality that the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. And he has promised to never forsake you. So remember the goodness of God in your suffering. Remember you're blessed. The fifth step to handling suffering in a Christ-honoring way is to embrace the purpose of suffering. Embrace the purpose of suffering. Verse 11b. James goes on to say, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. So since James is writing to a Jewish audience, he automatically assumes they know who Job was and how he endured through unimaginable suffering. And I can almost assume the same things about you, but... I've learned the hard way not to assume things, especially from the pulpit. So let me briefly introduce you to Job. In the Old Testament, there is an entire book written about a man named Job. 
We read an account of a righteous man of God who literally went from riches to rags back to riches. In Job 1 and 2, we see that he loses all his material possessions. He loses all ten of his children in a freak accident. He loses his health. And he even loses, to put the cherry on top, the fidelity of his wife. Remember that? His wife comes along to him and says, just curse God and die. Just give up. Gee, thanks, wife. He was at the bottom. And at first, he responds rightly. He responds in worship. So we could follow that example of how he first responded. He said the famous words that everybody knows, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be. The name of the Lord. That text of Scripture has comforted me probably more than any other text in Scripture. But then we, got, we, we can't just stop there. Right? If we're going to be honest exegetes, we have to get the full story, don't we? In, in, in chapter 3, he begins to unravel. As he is subjected to the unbiblical counsel, you could call it psychobabble, tradition of men, philosophy of men. They give him all kinds of bad theology. And it makes it worse. So finally, God graciously collides with Job's messed up thinking. Chapter 38. By the end of the book, Job repents from his grumbling, and God restores him. Now with that backdrop in mind, I had to wonder as I was studying this text and preparing this message, why would James use Job as an example since he complained bitterly about God's treatment of him? Because he just said, don't grumble. But Job grumbled a lot. So why, why, why use Job? Well, here's why. Job never abandoned his faith. In the midst of his incomprehension, he never abandoned God. He clung to God and continued to hope in the midst of his suffering. One commentator wrote that Job is no groveling, passive, unquestioned example of submission. He struggled, and get this, he questioned, and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. So by God's grace, he did endure. And at the end of Job's season of intense suffering, here's the crescendo, get ready. The reason for it all was to test him. But get this, Job didn't know that. Job wasn't privy to the heavenly conversation Yahweh and Satan had. And the outcome of God's dealings, as James says, dealings with Job was a vindication of Job's faith. He passed the test. So listen carefully. The whole story of Job underscores the importance of trusting God in his purposes. Because in like all other human experiences, suffering is a direct, divine appointment.
it's directed as a result of divine wisdom. So at the very least, we can endure like Job because we've been given the knowledge that everything we experience is orchestrated by our sovereign God. That's the fifth step. Now the sixth step to handling suffering in a Christ-honoring way is to dwell on the attributes of God. Dwell on the attributes of God. Dwell on the person, the character of God. And so this is one of many reasons why you need a deep, robust theology. You need that so that you can glorify God in your suffering. This is why we have equip. This is why we have Bible study. This is why you need to get together and fellowship around the Word because if all you're getting is this sermon in, your whole life, it's not enough. I can't teach you robust theology in 45 minutes a week. If you can't come to Bible study, if you can't come to equip, go out, get yourself a systematic theology book. You need to know God deeply so you can glorify him in your suffering. It's my life's ambition to see the local church, like little ones like this, take back the spiritual discipline of theological study from the academies. I, I mentioned this in the equip. The practice in our churchianity culture of going to Bible college and seminary to get systematic theology, church history, languages, counseling, preaching. That's created an expectation that those things are reserved for a select number of people who are extra special. You know what we're doing when, when we do that? We're reverting back to the Catholic Church, and which reverts back to Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, only a few people had special knowledge. And the Catholic Church, only the clergy could study the Bible. And all the lady was supposed to do was show up, eat the wafer, go home. But that's not what we do here. You learn theology and you come here to worship and serve. Because God has given you a gift to edify the body. And he's given me the responsibility to equip you to do that. Part of equipping you is teaching you the attributes of God so you can glorify God in your suffering so you can be a witness to the community. And also, can I let you on a little secret? The books that gifted scholars publish are not published for pastors just so they can build their library and show it off in front of other pastors. They were written for you, for the church, in order that you may know God more deeply. You should not have to go to Bible college or a Bible institute to learn the Bible because it's your elder's job to teach you those things. It's not my job to facilitate events. It's not my job primarily to do other things my job primarily to equip you for the work of service. And so, when we know more deeply about God, you can, you can endure like Job. Having a good biblical and systematic theology is necessary if you're going to handle suffering according to God's will. And by that, I simply mean 
knowing who God is. In this text, we're exposed to two basic, fundamental attributes of God. And all I mean by attribute is, what is God like? Who is he? Well, James says he's full of compassion. Look at that. Full of compassion. If, if you have an NASB or NIV, take note of that little word full placed in front of compassion. Translators of the ESV omit it. So if you have an ESV, you don't see it. And then the Holman and New King James Version chose to render the single Greek verb as very. Now, I highlight this very minor difference in translation, number one, to remind you that every translation is an interpretation. And therefore, sometimes this or that translation can be a little misleading. And two, to urge you and show you to be an analytical Bible studier. So you can be more precise and accurate in your personal encounter with God through his word. Whenever you see a difference in translation, you should wonder why and investigate it. Because sadly, I've sat in meetings where theological distinctives are rejected or accepted over an argument like the NASB says that, but my NLT says this, and I like the way the NLT says it, so I'm going to go with that. That's my theology. That is an exegetical no-no. If there is a cardinal sin in Bible study, it's that. So in other words, learn to use a commentary, learn to use a concordance, learn to use dictionaries, learn, learn to find good expository preaching that exposes these things. And that will enable you to grow. Now, back on track here. By translating the Greek compound word, which is polusplaknos, full of compassion, or very compassionate, they're trying to capture the intensity of the whole word, okay? So I'm sure, I'm sure most of my friends and professors would argue that the ESV did not capture the intensity of the word because it's a compound word. It literally means abounding, polus, and splaknos, bowels. So literally the word is abounding in bowels. That's less literal translation. But if you were at home, if I gave you that literal translation, you went home and you studied this for your devotion, and you read that God is abounding in bowels, you'd be like, what does that mean? What? Yeah. So, so it's an idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom. And it, it simply refers to the deep-seated feelings that produce physical reaction. Sometimes it's used literally, spontanos, and where we see when Judas killed himself that his intestines gushed out. It's the same word here. But other times it's used figuratively, and that's obvious the way it's used here. Again, it's referring to the deep seat of emotions in the inner man. That produces a physical reaction. You know, like when, when you start to feel anxious and you get nervous and you start to sweat, 
we call that butterflies in the stomach, right? Maybe before a big test or, you know, before I get ready to preach, you know, I'm, I get a little butterflies, you know. Yeah, you get, get, get married, you get some butterflies in your stomach, right? Well, it's, it's just another way of saying abounding bowels. The biblical writers associated the emotions with the bowels because strong emotions produce physical reactions in the lower abdomen. And so what James is saying here is that God, this is where it gets amazing. This is God himself for you has a deep gut level concern for you. His being is moved for concern for his people and their suffering. And we, we attribute this attribute to God, also revealed in his son. In Matthew 9, it says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion, splonknos, for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep of the shepherd. Jesus saw that they were wayward and without, without spiritual leadership. And he was moved to where he had physical reaction over it. See that difference? You know, there are different levels of concern for people, right? You see a homeless person on the street, I really feel sorry for that guy. I was I was at the light night event, the cancer walk downtown. My kids look a little freaked out when they see homeless people because they don't see them around here, right? And, and they're so captivated by this poor man laying on the ground with a blanket. You know, you, you feel sorry for him. You feel some compassion. But the compassion I felt for that man was nothing compared to the compassion I felt for the dozens of children that I saw wearing red capes. Which symbolized that they were survivors of leukemia. You see, so God doesn't look at us and say, you know, I, I really feel sorry for that guy right now. No, he's, he's, he's moved. He's splonknos. He's He has a deep gut level concern for you. We see it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, Jesus says the Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, the man that was beaten and left for dead, remember? He saw him and he felt splonknos. He didn't walk by and say, ooh, man, you're having a bad day. He came to him. He was moved to the point of doing something. He bandaged his wounds and poured oil over them and put him on his own beast and brought him to a hotel and said, I'll pay for it. So in the same way that Samaritan experienced that level of concern, God sees us in our suffering as abounding in his bowels. Meaning that he has intense emotion, genuine care for his children. I have to say emotion because we cannot equate God's emotion with our emotion. Because oftentimes our emotion is sinful, but God's is never. Secondly, the second attribute of God we see here is that he's merciful. Merciful is almost a synonym 
it just means pity, to pity somebody. He's merciful towards you. He pities you. He withholds something that you deserve. Look at your child who just did something wrong. For a second, you're angry. But then you look at his puffy face and you just, all right, don't do it again. You know? Because you pity him. He doesn't understand. He's a little kid. And he's still learning. But more than that, when it comes to God's mercy, his pity for sinners, we know he's merciful because of Christ. The fact that God is merciful is unmistakable in Scripture. And we're forced to be completely overwhelmed by God's mercy in Jesus Christ if we really understand the gospel. To illustrate this, picture Jesus looking over an obstinate Jerusalem saying with a tear in his eye, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who and stones those who are sent to her. How often have I gathered how often have I wanted to gather your children together? The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you are unwilling. Jesus had pity on them. Even though they were obstinate, they killed and stoned his messengers, he still pitied them. So even in our sin, and even in our darkest season of suffering, God pities us. He does not turn his back, and he is not detached from your personal life. So dwell on that. In your suffering, dwell on that. In any trial or persecution that we face, it can be overcome. But it can only be overcome if you handle it the biblical way. The Christ-honoring way, as James reveals here. Focus on Christ's return. Control your tongue. Imitate godly examples. Remember God's goodness. Embrace the purpose of suffering. And dwell on the attributes of God. If you apply these steps, you will be ready to enter into any period of pain or mourning or hardship that God has planned for you. Because as a messenger of God's word, we have to remind each other that God does say clearly, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeals come among you. Consider it joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. So, when they come, don't look to the world. Don't. Look to God, who loved you enough to save you, and who knows your heart more than any man or woman with a secular credential. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. May we apply these things and may we believe them. I pray that we will be sufferers for your glory and we will apply these steps. 
Oh, Father, all of us can just remember one, it would be enough. If you can remember you're compassionate. Remember you are full of mercy and compassion and you are coming soon. That Job persevered and you vindicated his faith. We love you, Lord. May we suffer for your glory because we know that it's your will to test us and purify us. In Jesus' name, amen.